Hello and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. As we are thrilled to be able to bring to you all eight talks from Ripperologist Magazine's 21st birthday conference that took place at the Chamberlain Hotel in London over the weekend of the 3rd and 4th of September 2016. The following presentation is by Professor Clive Emsley with a talk entitled Victorian and Edwardian Detectives, Types and Comparisons. Professor Emsley is the director of the European Center for the Study of Policing, co-director of the International Center for Comparative Criminological Research, and co-directs the Old Bailey Proceedings Online Project. He is the author of numerous books, including The Great British Bobby, A History of British Policing from the 18th Century to the Present. As with all of the series of talks from the Ripperologist Conference, a compendium of sorts featuring articles from all of the speakers was published in Ripperologist Magazine issue 151, and I encourage all of our listeners to obtain and refer to that issue for further reading, as well as seeing some of the images that were used in these presentations. If you do not yet have Ripperologist Magazine, you can easily join their subscription list for free by emailing contact at ripperologist.biz. And now over to the Chamberlain Hotel and Clive Hemsley. Since the 1980s, his work has focused on history of crime and policing. He's the director of the European Centre for Study of Policing. He also co-directs the uh, the Old Bailey Online Proceedings website as well. So, uh, and the lights have just come on as well. Uh, so, can we uh, please have a big welcome to Professor Clive Elmsley? Elmsley. I was told it was a 21st birthday, so I got the best bib and tucker on. <laughs> if I'd have known, you know. <laughs> now, the only other thing I have to do is ensure that I do get that. Oh, you've already changed it for me. Uh, right. Um, there's a slight problem in as much as uh, academics are programmed to speak for 50 minutes, and clearly uh, you don't want me to do that. So I'll keep it as... Uh, as short as I can, and um, uh, give you time to ask questions if you haven't <coughs> nodded off by the time I think I've finished. Okay, let's see if that... Uh, press the wrong one. There we go. Right. I said I was going to talk about police detectives. Now, the Metropolitan Police, as everybody knows, finest police force in the world, first police force in the world, if you read the traditional histories. But anyway, this police force took to the streets in September 1829. If you go to Paris, by the way, and go to their police museum and say, well, I come from London or Britain, where the first police force took to the streets in... um, September 1829, they were saying, Non, monsieur, madame, parce que la première police force, c'est uh, the, uh, the force of uh, the préfet de Belém, which took to the streets in March 1829. <laughs> um, so there. Now, supposedly, the first police force, non-military, unarmed and non-political. And the new police instructions actually spell this out at the very beginning. 
It should be understood at the outset that the object to be attained is the prevention of crime. And to this end, every effort of the police is to be uh, directed. There is no mention in these instructions of detection. But this doesn't mean to say that people weren't detecting crime. Now, along with the, the notion of um, the English police being the first in the world, uh, okay, I actually use the term English police. A Scotsman gets very upset if you talk about the English police being the first because he would tell you that they had a police force in Glasgow in 1805. But very often to illustrate this point, the point that is regularly made in the traditional histories, um, these historians start by quoting Shakespeare. Because Shakespeare was a great um, critic and observer of policing. And he gave us Dogbury and Verges, and no one seems to recognise the fact that these guys are in a comedy and that they are meant to be funny. And if they say, if they get words wrong, that's because that's part of the fun. And you can still, in, until very recently, or possibly even today, in uh, the Police Review, which is a kind of trade paper, they have the Dogberry column, in which people send in little gems that they have heard, and they love getting them from senior officers, especially the ones who've been from Bramshill. And at Bramshill, I am told Bramshill has now been closed down. But, uh, the, the, the joke was, as I once heard a constable tell me, uh, that you went to Bramshill to have your brain removed. Um, and the, the kind of comments that you get there are, uh, well, I heard our chief superintendent say the suspect's in there, so throw an accordion round the building. Or um, the, the best, the police dog is an, admiral, an admirable detergent against crime. <laughs> Anyway, this traditional view, the Dogberry and Burgess, the funny old guys, is often illustrated with this photograph of a, um, a pre-police watchman, constable, parish constable. Um, one, one of the things that boring historians have been doing for the last 20 years is actually taking this view apart. And you can actually take it apart from that photograph, because... Um, if he's an 18th century bobby, or an 18th century watchman, um, when do you start getting photographs? Now, he probably was an 18th or early 19th century um, watchman. But by the time this photograph was taken, he was well out of his prime, as you can well see. So that isn't not cannot be the photograph of a watchman in his prime uh, before the creation of the Metropolitan Police. And there are very good detectives around, and they are working out of police offices in London. John Townsend was a Bow Street runner. Now, in 1730, the Bow, Bow Street Magistrate's Office um, emerged as the centre for the administration of justice in, 
in the wider metropolis, not the city, because the city was very um, determined to hang on to its own privileges. Then in 1749, the Fielding brothers moved in. Henry Fielding, the novelist, and his half-brother, John, later Sir John, uh, who was blind uh, and was known as the Blind Beak of Bow Street. Um, And these men wrote about and they thought about policing, but they didn't actually think about uniformed men marching up and down who were simply going to prevent crime. They actually had most of their officers investigated crime, or their principal officers, the principal officers of Bow Street. The principal officers of Bow Street were the runners, and they loathed being called runners, because runners made them sound like um, messengers, and they weren't messengers, and the story is they wouldn't get out of bed for less than a guinea. In other words, they were paid for investigations that they did. And they also did investigations for um, the fieldings. But they also worked privately, and they worked privately across the country. Um, And anyone who was prepared to pay them a guinea or more a day up in... West Yorkshire or something, you could get a, plus expenses of course, because you've got to get up to Leeds or wherever, uh, would get a principal officer of Bow Street. Now these were a rough, tough bunch of individuals. They worked for fees and they earned considerable sums. Um, John Townsend, who you see here, I mean these men are, are famous enough to actually have their their illustrations made of them with sort of little jokes at the at the bottom. The town's end. Um, it's like the Trump, but this guy was better. Um, town's end retired worth twenty thousand pounds. Not bad um, for a metropolitan policeman today. Retired uh, with that sum of money. Um, uh, should we say converted into modern currency I think one or two eyebrows would be raised John Sayer who worked alongside Townsend uh, <coughs> apparently uh, when he died um, left £30,000 now those two are probably exceptional, exceptional uh, Townsend and Sayer but these blokes were com- competent detectives with ability to follow up footprints, they measure the length of axles to see if particular wagons have gone down a street. Uh, they would take a plaster cast of, of boots, of someone kneeling wearing corduroy trousers. They, they weren't, uh, as I say, they weren't stupid. By the, um, by the standards of the day, as far as ballistics, whatever, were concerned, they, uh, they were on top of them. One of them actually um, uh, did a, primit- a very sort of primitive ballistics test um, and, and found the murderer as a result. Um, he, it was during the, about the time of the Chartist disturbances and someone had been shot in the head and the, the 
round um, ball fired from a pistol had a kind of ridge in it. And this runner found the bullet mould, because people commonly made their own bullets or balls, um, lead balls, um, and he took a cast of a new uh, pistol ball and found exactly the same reach from the one that they'd taken out of the man's skull. They're not stupid, these folks. They are actually quite good detectives. Um, so good that people are beginning to think that they need more of them, more offices like Bow Street, that they need some kind of policing system to cover the whole metropolis. One of the big worries is that police is something uh, which has got the... Um, those of you who are Brexiteers will love this, who've got a kind of French element to it. Because the French police, uh, the one national police force in 18th century France was the Marechaussee, which is the, the forerunner of the gendarmerie. Not every French policeman is a gendarme, by the way. Um, and they were soldiers, and they still are. The gendarmerie is a military force. Um, and then there were uh, then there were policemen, and they were very, very well organised. There was a very well organised police system in Paris, um, which did have some detectives, uh, but very often what they did was investigate. Well, they obviously investigated conventional crime, ordinary decent crime, but they also investigated political threats against the government, which of course nobody needed to do in England, did they? <laughs> um, so there are discussions about improving the police throughout the 18th century, only we mustn't make them anything like the French. In 1792, the government does actually get a bill through Parliament, the Middlesex Justices Act, which builds on the success of Bow Street to establish seven police officers, offices, each staffed by three magistrates, just like Bow Street, um, who were paid, and... Um, each office had round about seven and seven or eight constables, like, but obviously nowhere near the the level of the uh, the guys in Bow Street. Um, and one of the key movers in this, who is again um, listed after the Fieldings as a great inventor of the British police, was in fact a Scotsman from Glasgow, possibly uh, who had been involved in the creation of that police structure um, 25 years before in Glasgow. He was a merchant with enormous trade, um, trade interests in the Americas, even after the American War of Independence. Um, uh, Patrick Colquhoun, and Colquhoun wrote a series of books about um, 
policing, policing the metropolis, because obviously as a merchant he worried about things that were getting nicked off cargo ships in the port of London. Um, and he was instrumental in creating a river police uh, which investigated uh, these kinds of thefts. Um, and as I say, he he's in that, that sort of um, pantheon of great reformers of the English police system. So, 1829 you get the creation of the Metropolitan Police. 1839 it's cemented with a new Act of Parliament. But as I say, those detectives don't, those, um, the Metropolitan Police do not have a detective branch. So what do you do when you need to investigate a crime? Superintendent Andrew McLean tells a parliamentary committee in 1833 a man in uniform will hardly ever take a thief. Um, well, until 1839, you still had the principal officers of Bow Street. You also had the constables of the police offices, and you had various individuals working privately, private detectives, or for public bodies like the Bank of England. Uh, and the Mint uh, had this character called Inspector John Field. Now, he's not the John Field that Dickens writes about. If you do look at the Old Bailey online, you will find Field occurring many times as the arresting officer, principal witness against coiners, um, anyone who is, um, who is fiddling the currency one way or another. Um, and so you do have detectives available. Um, not necessarily, well, not at all connected with the Metropolitan Police, although some police constables from the old offices, the old police offices, magistrates' offices, move into the Metropolitan Police to get promotion. And some um, good men actually go the other way. Um, and men in the new police sometimes are... Um, are given authority to wear plain clothes and to be employed, not paid, but to be allowed to go, say, from H Division to A Division, um, where they won't be known, to act as observers, watchers, people who are going to write down information. But there was concern over the fact that some of these might men some of these men might turn into agents provocateurs and you have this major scandal in 1833 um, the affair of sergeant william pope who got himself into a political organization without telling anyone that he was a policeman and then um uh, not just making notes, but actually suggesting how they might start the revolution, uh, which 
<coughs> is not really what you're supposed to do. Um, and then this, there are a lot of, there are quite a number of bent coppers. And um, Jesse Jeeps, Juicy Lips, as apparently he was known in the criminal fraternity, is a good example of this. Now, Juicy Lips regularly turns up in the Old Bailey uh, as having in plain clothes nabbed people at night for this, that and the other. Um, it turns out that dear old Juicy Lips was bent as a donkey's hind leg, as the phrasing has it, um, but they couldn't pin anything on him, so they, they sacked him. You couldn't do that today. Um, you couldn't sack him without proving what he'd done. Now, just a quick something about this continental spy system. As I said, it existed to some extent in the, uh, in the 18th century, and one of the lieutenant generals of police in Paris, a man called Sartine, was once heard to say, um, whenever three individuals meet and start talking in the streets of Paris, one of them will be my man. A mouche, or a mouchard, a fly, the flies who sort of, well, like flies on the wall, I suppose, who um, spy uh, on their uh, fellow countrymen. The situation, as far as the English, British were concerned, got worse. Uh, as a result of the revolution, French Revolution, and then Napoleon. Joseph Fouché, um, who really does look like the head of a sinister political police force, um, began life as a Jacobin, well, he didn't begin life. Um, I think he actually began life in a monastery. Um, but then he became a Jacobin terrorist then he became Napoleon's first minister of police. Napoleon got rid of him when he found that uh, Fouché was, um, was playing both sides. Fouché was negotiating with the English. Well, you know, okay, if Napoleon does get beaten. Um, <coughs> and Fouché then actually comes, um, Napoleon gets rid of Fouché about 1809-1810 because he's very, suspicious of him and he's for good reason perhaps um, <coughs> uh, then Fouché comes back when Napoleon is defeated after Waterloo as the Minister of Police for Louis XVIII doesn't last very long but and then of course you have Eugène François Vidocq now Vidocq um, was a, a former uh, thief convict Straight out of Les Miserables, really, you know, working on the galleys in uh, Toulon. Um, <clears throat> and he became head of the Paris Police Detective Department um, in the prefecture of police round about 1811. He set a thief to catch a thief. Uh, and uh, Vidocq then wrote his memoirs in the late 1820s. And of course, they. Um, uh, they reached the UK and there was a play about Vidocq you know, uh, in, in London in actually about the year, the, about 1829 when the Met were invented. 
Okay, back to prevention only. 1839 to 1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1842-1
Caminada wrote his memoirs, which basically tell you what an incredibly good detective he was, um, how he often went out with a pistol and he always got his man, um, which are, for all his unfortunate experiences and, and so on, um, is allegedly the basis for Wilkie Collins' uh, Sergeant Cuff, uh, and also the detective in Lady Audley's Secret. Now, as I say, these men have no training, um, and from the 18th century, uh, there, there isn't any training. You, you learn it from the blokes who've gone before you and you think about it yourself. Um, there were experiments being undertaken to see uh, how best to prove the use of a poison, what sort of poison could have been used, and poison was incredibly widely available. You just went to the corner shop and said, oh, I've got some rats. Can I have some arsenic? Yeah, how much do you want? Um, or, uh, oh, the baby won't stop crying. Can I have some laudanum? Yeah, how much do you want? No problem. Um, there were some bullet, some assessments could be made of bullets. Um, as I, I've already mentioned, the, the Bow Street Runner. Um, but fingerprints don't come in until the turn of the century, although they are being used elsewhere. People are experimenting with them. There is a, the, the first conviction, I think, using fingerprints is in, of all places, Argentina, uh, where their police were quite on the ball for using these kinds of things in the 1890s. Um, it's not really until the beginning of the 20th century that people are convicted using fingerprints um, in, the, in the British courts. Um, and similarly, detecting the difference between animal blood and human blood was something that couldn't be done until the beginning of the 20th century. So, you've got these detectives, um, detective department set up in 1842. Just how good and honest are they? Well, 1877, there is a staggering revelation which leads to four senior members of the uh, Metropolitan Police Detective Branch finishing up in the Old Bailey, um, charged with uh, assisting a couple of fraud racing um, uh, <coughs> con men, Harry Benson and William Kerr. You've got Inspector John Michael John, who is in their pay. They've been in their pay for the previous four years. Um, another inspector had um, uh, sent an un unsigned letter 
uh, to an informant which could be seen as corrupt, which was involved with uh, Benson and Kerr. Um, William Palmer went. William Palmer went along with everything. Uh, Chief Inspector Nathaniel Druskovich borrowed money from Kerr on Michael John's advice to pay off a debt. Um, Clark was acquitted um, and resigned. The others got uh, two years. Uh, and you can see I've listed what happened to them. Didn't exactly cover the Metropolitan Police detectives with glory. And everyone thought, we need to do so something about this. Uh, we need some sort of control over our uh, police detectives. So they advertised for someone to, um, uh, to run a criminal investigation department. The man who applied and who got the job was this fellow, Howard Vincent. Um, you've got his biography up there. He went to Sandhurst, um, became a newspaper reporter, really writing about military matters while he was still in the army. Um, in 1877, recognising the problem, he signed on in the law faculty of the University of Paris, specifically to study French detectives. He wrote a report, um, applied for and was appointed Director of Criminal Investigation. Now it's interesting to note that as the Director of Criminal Investigation, he was responsible directly to the Home Secretary, not to the Commissioner. Fortunately, he got on very well with the Commissioner. Um, but that's, that, that's an interesting development there, that the Commissioner is directly responsible to the Home Secretary, so also is the head of the um, uh, the detective department. Now, Vincent didn't hang on to the job for very long, I think about um, six or seven years, and then he became uh, an MP, uh, which, and he served as an MP until his death. But Vincent's CID uh, still had problems. Obviously, it didn't solve the problem of Jack the Ripper. Um, nobody solved the problem. Well, I'm sure that quite a few people here have solved the problem. But, um, oh, well, there you go. Fair enough. <laughs> Was it? All, have you all come to the same conclusion? Though? That's the important thing. Um, so, there, I mean, that that was the one that really hit the headlines. But um, about eight years before then, another one hit the headlines, the Thomas Titley case, which revived the old fears of French police as snoopers, spies, and agents provocateurs. Thomas Titley was a chemist. 
and he was suspected of supplying abortifacients. Yeah. Um, so, but they couldn't prove anything. So, virtually what they did was set him up. Uh, a police sergeant went in and said, "Well, got a big problem. My um, my daughter's uh, in a family way. Uh, can you help?" And Titney said, "No." So, the sergeant's wife came in and said, oh, I'm really, I'm really worried. I think my husband's been in the senior. Our daughter's in the family way. Please, can you help? No, can't help, can't help. <coughs> then they got a young police officer to come in and he said, I'm a bit worried. I've got this girl in a family way. Um, uh, if I give you 25 quid, can you, can you sort of give her something? And at this point, Titley appears to have cracked. And given the bloke something. Oh, actually, I've forgotten. The sergeant's daughter also came in and said, my boyfriend's got me in a family working. The four people go in and, and tell this bloke they've got a problem. And one of them actually produces £25 to buy the necessary. Uh, <laughs> and then they all turn up and arrest poor old Tickley, who <coughs> ships up in the Old Bailey um, and gets 18 months. But it turns out that the 25 quid actually came out of CID funds. And... Um, doesn't actually get Titley out of prison, but that press have a field day. Particularly the old arguments of, oh, this is French, isn't it? You know, what we need is, is, it, is someone with a good name, like good English name, like Farage, to sort this out. <laughs> anyway, poor old, poor old Titley does his time. Um, so we. We do have this concern about the uh, um, the agent provocateur, and not without cause. But we also have political detectives. But you try and run a country without political detectives. I think it's probably, especially a country which is running an empire in which not everyone within that empire thinks of the empire as a good thing. Initially, this was the Irish, with the Fenians. And the Fenians, um, well, they, they mount several attacks in the UK. Um, that's probably the most spectacular one, or one of the most spectacular ones, in 1884, which is the, the Rising Sun pub was directly outside Scotland Yard. Gosh, I can't think anyone ever came out of one door and went into the other, but there you go. Um, the special branch was created within the detective division um, to investigate the Fenians and it was originally called the Special Irish Branch. 
Um, and an enormous number of the coppers working in the special Irish branch were actually Irish, and they came from the Midlands of Ireland, um, which is one reason why in the film Suffragette, if you've seen it, Brendan Gleeson speaks with a Midlands Irish accent. Because I've heard people say, oh, he should have a Northern Irish accent if he's happening. No, he's absolutely right. He's got a Midlands Irish accent. Um, towards the end of the century, uh, you're having problems with other kinds of people who appear to be threatening the British way of life. You have socialists, you have foreign anarchists, the people at Sid the Sydney Street spe uh, siege, Peter the Painter, um, the people who uh, shoot four policemen, I think it is, in Houndsditch, about less than half a mile from where we are at the moment, are the people who are involved or who have links with individuals who are uh, eventually cornered in Sydney Street. Um, so you've got foreign anarchists, and you can go through again the, the records of the old Bailey and find uh, those kinds of anarchists. And of course, moving that way to Whitechapel, Whitechapel becomes a centre for Jews escaping pogroms in Eastern Europe. Um, and the police are really worried about these Jews because they don't speak English. Uh, and in 1905, they actually start training English metropolitan policemen who are on the beat in the Whitechapel area to, uh, in Yiddish so that they can actually understand and communicate with the locals. Um, and as I say, these, these people from Eastern Europe have an idea, have an image of policemen. And however iffy some metropolitan policemen are, they are not like the kind of police that these individuals would have met in, um, in the Pale. But they don't know that. And if they can't talk to them, it's, there's a kind of mutual hostility develops between the two. And then, of course, now, <laughs> you're going to love these photographs. Um, some special branch officers take it upon themselves, take it upon themselves to uh, pursue things which are threatening the English-British way of life. This, of course, is the era, the era of Oscar Wilde's imprisonment, outrage over Aubrey Beardsley's illustrations, the Lord Chamberlain banning George Shaw's play Mrs. Warren's Profession. Um, now, most of these problems, as far as the uh, 
detectives were concerned came under or could be slotted under the heading of anarchy and dirty pictures obviously I mean these blokes would wander in I suppose the equivalent of Charing Cross Road and say let's have a look on your top shelf then son <laughs> although you, you don't have to do that now but they, these are the kinds of pictures that they are looking for and they followed their own inclinations. They, they did their best to do people who were um, involved with things like advocating free love. I mean, there were uh, um, journals, books at the time, which said, yeah, nothing wrong with free love. Uh, well, it's dangerous to British morals, isn't it? So... Now, interestingly, some of the things that Special Branch particularly were up to were, well, Sir Robert Anderson, Metropolitan Police Assistant Commissioner Crime from 1888 to 1901. Anderson, a lawyer who actually was running the... CID and Special Branch uh, and he wrote to the Home Office this is December 1898 just look at the sort of third, fourth lines down uh, the police in plain English have been doing things which are utterly unlawful and, and he's actually talking about Special Branch and then um, a couple of months later or a couple of weeks later, he's saying, um, uh, you know, we <laughs> they're doing things which are extra legal. Um, I hesitate to use the ordinary word which seems applicable to it. Well, what does extra legal mean? Um, <clears throat> so um, that's actually, I think, really rather interesting that basically these blokes finish up doing exactly what um, people were criticising the French for doing 150 years before. Okay, very quickly, a conclusion. The Home Office were denying that they had a political police. Um, certainly before the First World War, the Home Secretary was standing up in Parliament and saying, we don't have a political police. Oh, we've got special branch, but I mean, they, they just look after the royal family and the Palace of Westminster and so on. Um, no mention at all of what Sir Robert Anderson is saying in his correspondence. Um, but that's the area which is sort of swept under the carpet. And we really knew very little about that. We might have suspected it, but we knew very little about that until Bernard Porter's book, which came out at the end of the um, 1980s, uh, in which he had used um, the kind of uh, correspondence where you find uh, Anderson saying things like that. Um, interestingly, uh, Porter said, well, can I look at anything 
after 1914 and was told, oh, everything after 1914 was pulped because of the paper shortage during the Second World War. Um, well, um, what's his name? Andrew at um, uh, Cambridge has written a book about the Secret Service, MI6, manifestly these papers were not. And um, Keith Jeffrey also looked at some of the, th these papers were not lost. They were not destroyed. They're sitting on them. Well, they're not sitting on them so much now, but uh, Keith Jeffrey and, um, oh dear, I can't think of his first name. Christopher Andrew. Um, I mean, they, they, they've got sort of apologies for not being able to footnote some of the things that they quote, uh, because they were given the run of this documentation, but were told, you don't tell them where you got that quotation from. Um, so that's going on, that's swept under the carpet. But detectives are fascinating. Police detectives are fascinating. And men like Caminada, as I say, they wrote their memoirs. And there are a whole cluster of them beginning to write their memoirs at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th centuries. And clearly they are writing these memoirs because publishers think there's a market for them. Publisher won't publish anything unless he thinks he can flog it. Um, some people have argued that under Anderson, um, crime declined to its lowest levels ever in London. What that means is reported crime declined tells you nothing about crime. Um, so you can't actually say that the, the detectives were being singularly efficient. Um, but what you can say is that these statistics were appearing in newspapers and people were believing that the situation was getting better and that, um, uh, that the detectives, because when a detective writes his memoirs, he's going to tell you how good he is. Um, that the detective writing in that way is having a, a significant uh, influence on the crime statistics. But at the beginning of the 20th century, the British were living in a fantasy world. They thought, they said they had the best police in the world. I don't know how you actually measure whether you've got the best police in the world, but they kept on saying it, and if you keep on saying it after a while, you believe it. They claimed they were quite different from elsewhere. Now, visitors from uh, Prussia actually came over and they looked at, um, what, at the British police and they actually thought that there were good aspects to them. Um, but then liberals in Prussia actually, this was an argument for destroying the authoritarian nature of the Prussian state. So you need to think carefully about why they're writing what they're writing and exactly what they're saying. 
if you look at Raymond Fosdick, the former uh, uh, American police officer who visited the whole of Europe before the First World War, I mean, Fosdick thought that the British were actually getting left behind um, in matters of policing. Most significantly, well, not most significantly, but amongst other things, uh, with detectives. There was no training for detectives. The Metropolitan Police set up a training branch for detectives in 1902, but if you wanted to go to it, you had to go to it after you had finished your um, your normal day's work as a police officer, which could go on for a very long time. So, uh, and you could have to get up early the next morning to go to court and so on and so forth. So, um, you really had to be an enthusiast for being a detective to do that. Of course, Britain is the land of Sherlock Holmes. But where do you find a detective training school where the first lecture to candidates is begins with the head of the school saying, the greatest detective is Sherlock Holmes. If you study Sherlock Holmes, you will see that every offence leaves a trace. Every offender leaves a trace. It's up to you to find that trace and then find the offender. Now, where was that being said? Regularly, from just before the First World War? Lyon. Not Lyons, but Lyon. And who was saying it? Edmond Locard, a Frenchman and head of the training school for French detectives um, in Lyon. Thank you very much. And that was Professor Clive Emsley with a talk entitled Victorian and Edwardian Detectives, Types and Comparisons. I would like to extend the warmest of thanks to Adam Wood, the editor and publisher of Ribrologist Magazine, and Frog Moody of the Casebook Classic Crime Club for allowing the recording and release of this landmark conference. A huge debt of gratitude is owed to Mark Ripper for overseeing the recording of all of the talks, and to the speakers themselves for granting their permission for making their contributions to the conference available for all of us to hear. As I said in my introduction, if you would like to become a subscriber to Ripperologist Magazine, the free bi-monthly journal of Jack the Ripper, East End, and Victorian Studies, send an email to contact at ripperologist.biz. For more information on the Casebook Classic Crime Club and to receive their free and also excellent magazine, go to timezonepublishing.com. Both publications also have their own Facebook pages, so you can find out a lot of information there. We are a podcast sponsored and hosted by Casebook.org, where you will find all of our roundtable talks, author interviews, and conference releases on Jack the Ripper and Victorian True Crime. The number of shows is now reaching 100, and that would never have been possible without the support of the Ripperologist community and you, our listeners. So I thank you for your continued support, and thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.